Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD and Tubi. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 317 from May 2021 with director Jen McGowan, who talks about the circumstances leading to her second feature film and how she kicked off her TV directing career, which is... Blowing up, by the way. I thought this was a nice pairing for Sylvia because they both started working as crew before their directing careers took off. After that, I play another round of You're the Expert, but first, don't forget to check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is the way the show continues to survive. Without you guys backing us up on here, I don't know if this thing would keep going. So thank you all for your wonderful support. This is also the way that you get all the back episodes of the podcast. Right now, there's 350 episodes behind the paywall and about to be 400 but with 199 you get access to everything but without any more bibble babble here's our throwback interview with jen mcgowan welcome to the show jen thanks for having me so let's get right into our first five questions uh give us the elevator pitch for rust creek oh uh, yeah, great. Uh, so Rust Creek is a story of a young woman in college who gets a job interview over Thanksgiving holiday and has to drive from rural Kentucky to uh, Washington, D.C. through Appalachia. And shit goes down. So that's it. That's it. Nice. How many days did you shoot? 22 over 25 days. We had lots of weather issues. Wait, 22 over 25 days? So you only had yeah. three days off the whole time? No, 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 no. What I mean oh. is some of those days were half days. Oh, so, okay. okay. Because we would get a tornado or a thunderstorm oh, or I something see. like that. Weather in Kentucky is very erratic and unpredictable. Hmm. And if you can say, uh, what was the rough budget of the show? Under a million. How long did you spend working on the film from? Um, you being brought on to the film's release. So I pitched on it. It was a director for hire production. So I, I pitched on it in um, August, early August. And we shot between Thanksgiving and Christmas that same year. And then um, the release was how far off from the that original movie? <sighs> you know, it's so hard for me to remember, but I think it was like a year later. Yeah. Um and then, and then the release, of course, with these ridiculous, you know, hybrid releases ends up taking a year itself. You know, you have your small theatrical, which comes out with your highest, most expensive pay for pay-per-view. I mean, basically that's what they do. They, they distribute based on where they can make the most money to where they make the least money. You know, so that starts out with theatrical, um, individual pay-per-view, then you go down to, I guess, uh, maybe, I don't even know when the DVDs come into it anymore, um, but it could be like a cable deal, um, which is more like a subscription situation. And then last at the very end is Netflix. I saw when you were trending. We could talk about that later. We are talking about that later. It's so funny because everybody's like, when it comes out on Netflix, everybody's like, oh my God, finally your movie's out. I'm like, it's actually been out for a year and it was in theaters <laughs> twice, but <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Um, how big was your crew on the film? Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, 
regular crew size, like probably like 35 or something, you know, indie film crew size. Compared to all the projects you've been uh, a part of, how difficult was this one? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, they're all difficult for different reasons and challenging in different ways, but I, I don't think I would use the word difficult really, because I really like, I love those situations. You know, I, I mean, you get pushed to your limits sometimes, but for the most part, that's what's enjoyable about filmmaking is problem solving. Um, so, or at least for me. Um, so I can tell you that the challenges specific to this production were weather, very much so. Um, we had, you know, we had snow, we had rain, we had, like I said, a tornado, like every weather that you can imagine we had. Um, and uh, the same thing that happens with every uh, indie film, or really any film, is not enough resources to accomplish the thing you want to accomplish. Um, so... That's why you have to have your priorities straight. Can we go back in time? I want to go back in time to Kelly and Cal because I've become new yeah. friends with Amy Starbin. And oh, so I just want to, yeah. <laughs> um, I Amy hear Starbin about, is the writer of Kelly and Cal. Yes, thank you. Thank oh. you for providing context uh, <laughs> and new fan of hers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got your first feature off the ground? Yeah. So that, it's so funny. Everything that I get, I can trace it back. Every single project, I can trace it back years to where the momentum for it started. Um, nothing ever just kind of comes out of the blue. For Kelly and Cal, um, there, were, there were two like converging momentums. One was um, I went to USC, Amy went to USC and just by luck and luck comes into it a lot. Um, there was a program that um, three alumni put on called USC First Team. Um, Barbara Stepanski and Cam Miller were two of the women who organized it. And um, what they did was they created a lab for USC alumni. And their goal was to instigate feature films amongst the alumni. Um, so they put out a call to all the alumni looking for 30 directors, 30 writers, and 30 producers. I happened to see that call. I applied and I got accepted as a director. And, and the structure was that um, you, you know, each person had to pair up in some fashion. So they had this massive speed dating event and you had two weeks to determine what the script was, who the director was and who the producer was. Oh, and that was your project. And that would allow you to proceed to the next level. And basically all they did was they set deadlines. Uh, they didn't get involved creatively and they didn't get involved financially and they didn't take any credit. And, and it was over a course of a year. Um, and every time, if you met the deadline, you could continue. If you didn't met the meet the deadline, you were basically out. And it started with 30. And I think from that eight or 10 features got produced. Um, so, which is incredible odds. And unfortunately they only did it for two years because USC didn't support it, which yeah, was. Yeah. Cause they um, did not have that when I was there or yeah, at least I, think they it was, did, it was, I wasn't invited. <laughs> I think it's really stupid. I'm hoping to kind of um, add that to Glass Elevator at some point. But in any case, um, uh, that's where I met Amy. She had, um, I always get this wrong. I always say two views, two views uh, pages, and then I get a text from her that's actually, um, so we'll say it was like two thirds of the script. Um, and I, I really liked it. And I liked the voice and I liked her and I liked what she wanted to do with it. And I was like, let's work on that. 
So she and I and a producer committed to one another, went through the project. Um, the producer ended up not working out, um, which is fine. But um, that was after we, we got our whole, whole thing done, which was a finished script, a treatment, a budget. And then we took that out. And when we lost our producer, I said, I'll, I'll figure it out. I will find producers. I didn't know anybody, but I said I would do it and I do what I say. So, you know, I just started calling everybody I knew that was tangentially close to the type of producer I needed. Um, I will say before I did that, we tested the script with a lot of people. We knew it was a good project. Um, we knew it was, it, was, it was an opportunity for a producer. It wasn't an ask. Um, so, and at the same time, this is the other momentum that was happening. I had a short film called Touch that was on the festival circuit that did incredibly well. It is still screening like 15 years later. Um, and uh, I still get residual checks for it sometimes. <laughs> and um, small. Uh, anyhow, so I, you know, I tried and tried and tried. I think I reached out to, ended up, you know, through word of mouth, reaching out to 30 producers that I pitched to. And every time somebody would say no, I would say, okay, do you know anybody who might, be looking for this. And I'd say half of the time they put me in touch with somebody else. Cause like I said, it was a good project. Um, then magically out of the blue, I got a call from Mandy Tagger and Adias Roney at spring pictures. And they're, that's their company in New York at the time. Um, they've moved on from that, but they said, you know, we heard about your film on the festival circuit. We heard it's doing really well. We're looking for an up and coming female director do you have anything you want to direct? And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is bullshit. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, sure. You know? Um, and I said, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got this film I'm trying to put together and had a bunch of other stuff, but I was like, this is the one that I think is closest to shoot. They're like, great, send it over. I sent it. Um, I think a week later they flew me to New York. We did a deal. And later that year we were shooting. Amazing. But like the thing that people usually hear in that is the luck. But what's important is there was also the previous film that got the attention and the hard work of preparing that project when we had no guarantee of it being seen by anyone. Um, so, yeah, that's the story. So for the, did that company, Spring Pictures, did they just come in and, and fund the whole thing? Or was it like they started like the process to help you find your funding or how did that all work? So uh, fortunately they did some other films before. So, um, you know, producers build their Rolodex just like, you know, directors or writers or anybody and they build their financial um, contacts. So they had private equity um, contacts that they would go back to regularly for their films. It doesn't mean they all, you know, every single one says yes, but it was very fortunately um, a fairly process. I also want to go back to what you said about testing the script. I think some people may want to know what exactly is the process for that. We talked to Sev Ohanian, who like micro tests his script. Like he asked, like, oh, really? did you notice that red hat in scene four? Like it's like <laughs> he, he like focus groups. Uh, oh, so he does the equivalent of like a screening test with yes, the script. on a script. That's interesting. But you're talking about just getting it out there and getting coverage or what exactly do you mean by that? Um, so what I mean by that is 
starting with people who don't matter, but whose opinions you trust and working up to people who do matter uh, for the project. So I will start with, it's funny. I never tell my husband what I'm working on. He doesn't usually know until I'm, I'm like, let's go to the screening. Um, So uh, I don't test on him. But I do test on one of my friends who is not in the industry, but I just like her taste and I value her opinion. And I know that she can't tank my career if she hates my script (laughs) and she'll tell me. Um, So I start with her um, and then I branch out from there. Um, You know, I might get to the point where I will test it with a producer, but not the correct producer for that project. Um, And that's the other thing, like, the biggest thing about this business and why it takes so long is you have to be hyper-specific. You never need a producer. You need the right producer. You never need a script. You need the right script. You never need a talent. You need the right talent. It takes a long time to build those relationships to have access to those people. Um, And you never know which people are the right people until you're working on the project. So you basically have to know 10 times the amount of people you need to achieve the thing so that hopefully you have one of the right people for everything to achieve the thing, you know? (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Take some time. So was Kelly and Cal your first feature? Yeah, it was. And and what had you done before that? Like, had you done a bunch of, you had that short film Touch, but was there other shorts before that? Or was that Touch your first short or? Yeah, I did. Um. I mean, my the- re- anything I would show people would be my my thesis film from USC, um, which was a teen comedy called Confessions of a Late Bloomer. Then I did um, I did some short form content like commercially stuff, but I, I, it doesn't really apply. Um, then I did Touch, so pretty much that. Wow, amazing! I, I mean, I did a bunch of films at film school. I went to USC. You know, and so, but that's not stuff I would show people. And I worked, you know, I studied, I studied uh, acting at NYU. So these things were being built up over a long time. It's not like, oh, I, I did a short one day and then I got a feature. So talk to us about like what happened after Kelly and Cal came, like was made and done, like, and how the distribution worked out for that film. So we premiered at South by, which was amazing. We won an award there called the Game Changer Award, which was very important. Uh, it it doesn't matter at all, but it helps distinguish you. Um, and it's something that you can say forever and ever, amen. So awards are important, unfortunately. Um, so we won that. Uh, we also got um, picked up at the festival um, from IFC, um, which is great. And then they did a day and date release. Um, we opened... I don't remember how many theaters. It was a very small number. Um, And uh, I think you go to iTunes first at that time. And, and, you know, it was a great release. It did really well. Everybody's really happy. Got great critical reviews. Um, People love Julia Lewis's performance in it, which was very important to me. And um, Johnny Weston's, which was especially important to me because he was kind of new. And then nothing happened. And how to make another feature. Wait, define nothing happens. So like no no agents, no managers, no anything like that. You just like had this movie came out and then it was like cr- crickets around the world or? Yep. Yeah. Wow. I didn't get my reps until after my second feature came out, not existed, came out. Wow. 
So this is a really important question for me personally, because I'm working on my first feature and I'm expecting Great. the same thing to happen to me without yeah. South, you South should by, expect, yeah, expect nothing, <laughs> expect nothing. And you will right. be a lot happier. So the question is like, what do you do at that stage? Like, how do you get your next film going when you, you hear crickets after you've put your heart and your soul out into the world? Well, first of all, you recover. I mean, you've given a lot, you're tired. You need to, <laughs> your cat is in the background. That's so fun. Um, you need to refresh. And like, I mean, after I make a movie, I am so spent. I, I have nothing left to give. I need to rest. So you do that. And then you get over the fact that you didn't get what you wanted. And you try again. And unfortunately, the second film is sometimes harder to make than the first. It's certainly harder to get attention on. Uh, Rust Creek got into no major festivals. I remember and you posting I, about that on Twitter. Like yeah. that's one of my favorite tweets of yours. Yeah, thank you. And and uh, I, you know, I've screened at Tribeca, I've screened at South by, and the problem is festivals need to sell tickets, right? So that's why a first-time filmmaker is much more attractive than a second-time filmmaker. I'm not a discovery anymore. But is that what you attribute? I mean. Uh, okay, so you let's go back. You said you didn't get representation until after the second feature, and we're right. recognizing um, a, a weird lack of momentum after the first feature, which I think is ridiculous, but I'm just acknowledging it. Do you yeah. attribute that to anything? Like, were you like, oh, it must be because of this, or it's because it's a drama? Mm -hmm. Like what, Here's you know, the thing. I have no idea. And I will never know for sure. Maybe people just didn't like me. Who knows? Um, I think, I think I was about a year too early with that film. Nobody was talking about women directors at all. The next year was like, everybody was looking for women directors. And, and you know, that, that's okay. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not bitter about that. That's, I'm just saying that because that's the only thing I can kind of figure. Um, or maybe the film wasn't good enough. I, I think it was great. I, you know, all objective feedback is that it was at least, you know, decent. Um, maybe it wasn't good enough. I mean, you got to South by, I mean, like, what else do you need at that point? I guess it's hard well, when you get the distribution you know deal. It's like selling tickets. That's a different thing, I guess. I don't know. Here's the thing. And I hope your listeners take this to heart that everybody that gets into festivals, Tribeca, Toronto, South by Sundance, nothing comes of it for most of them. Actually, Liz, you would probably know that, you know, because you've been so involved in it. No, I don't mean from your experience. No, I no, mean no, 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 no. <laughs> I know that, but that is true. No, I mean, because you know about the festivals very well. Well, no, I do think that, you know, we we had Amber Seeley on the show um, yeah. like several months ago, and we talked a little bit about labs and fellowships. And mm -hmm. she said, you know, uh, to a degree that they're meaningless, but the aggregation of all yes. of them means something. So I think that if you play Sundance, it means something, but it may not be uh, the phones are a ring in for you. you not know, at that moment. After exception. Yeah. No, and that's really hard for people to understand that, like, wait, I can't even get into Sundance and Sundance is only meant to be one of the things like what? That's unfortunately it. And, you know, I think about this a lot and I, I, I know, um, you know, like I, I, well, you know, Emily Best and I adore her and she always talks about like coming from a place of abundance and I 
I embrace that from my personal perspective, but I also know that in our industry, there's, there are limits, there are limits and not everybody, you know, there's only one director hired for every, every film. Um, and I think that in order to break in, I think there's a really good reason why they call it breaking in. It's because you have to disrupt something. You have to disrupt something either with your work or with who you are, meaning an A-list talent. Something has to be disrupted to bump someone else out of the position give it to you. Because we, we hear this term break in all over and over again, but most people we talk to don't even think they've broken in. But from my vantage point, they yeah. have. So it's like no one ever actually maybe breaking in is just like a fallacy. Maybe there is no breaking in because no one is in. There's no in. No, I think there is. The question is staying in is a whole different issue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why I, I, I really don't begrudge people, you know, who come from industry families or wealth on how they get in. Because staying in is a whole different issue. Building a career that you love is entirely a different issue. So going going back to Rust Creek then, like, you know, you're in this position where you feel like you have to start over and get your next feature made. Like, what do you do? Like, did you go back to the same producers from the first one and say, hey, let's make another movie? Like, do you have to find all new producers? Like, what, what are you doing? No, I mean, so I don't write. So that's something that I think is really relevant to this discussion and my career. So I've always reached out to writers and built re- relationships with writers and, and sought writers out um, to, to essentially develop material for myself to direct. So that's what I did. I just kept doing that. Um, and there was a great project I loved called Millie to the Moon, had a great producer attached, went through film independent fast track program. Couldn't get that one made. Um, but actually that one led me to a meeting with the producer of Rust Creek. That's how I met him because I was Stu? looking for finance. Uh, yeah, I was looking for finance for Millie to the Moon. And he didn't respond to that script, but he was like, you want to read something else? Mm. So again, it's like the combination of luck, a lot of hard work because I had to produce a whole other, you know, project, package a whole other project before I could get that meeting with him. I do want to talk about the writing thing because it's something that, I I don't know, maybe it's just from my vantage point. I always feel like as a female director, I always have to write my own content. And that that's kind of become almost a presumption of the female director is that they Mm -hmm. are a writer director. And I don't know why, but I completely reject that. I I strongly reject that. Please reject it. (laughs) And in it, I yeah, I really do. And I think um, I've had this conversation with a lot of executives that I feel that sometimes what happens in the indie film world is that what women directors get awarded and praised for is not what the larger industry wants. We get rewarded in in the indie world for personal, small, emotional. (laughs) Who the fuck wants that? I mean, you know, yes, you want to see it for an indie film, but you think Paramount's looking for that? You're right. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe, but that's not what I see. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so do, do you feel like that since you are a director and not a writer director, do you feel like that puts you at a disadvantage in any way? Or do you feel like having to find your collaborators, it actually gives you more opportunities because you're like looking for things? Yeah. How many scripts can you write at a time? I can work on three or four. <laughs> that was another reason I came to that, which was time. You know, I looked at my life and I was like, I don't have time to write. I'm a director. I want to direct. The fastest route is not through writing for me. And, and also, 
Okay. There's a lot of writers who are a lot better than me. I'd rather write, uh, direct their material. That's what I've come to lately. <laughs> it's like, I am not yeah. good enough. Um, not and having it's representation. It's really yeah. painful. I love it, but it's painful. Uh, I hate it. <laughs> so previous to now, when you didn't have representation, were yeah. you just scanning you know, press releases for lab announcements or how were you finding the best writers? Are we just asking your network or what, yeah. what was the process? Yeah, just yeah. meet people constantly. I mean, you know me, Liz, I, I, I would be at, I think this is the first year because of COVID that I didn't go out three or four nights a week to some industry events or, or one-on-one drinks or, or dinner, you know, um, my, this is my whole life. This is my whole life. This is my whole life. This is my husband's whole life. Like everything in our lives is organized by this singular goal, everything. And it has been for 20 years. It has been. When we look at an apartment, you know, do we want to have money for this apartment or do we want to have a little extra money for film festival entrances? We go with the cheaper apartment. Do I really need no jeans? No, because I need to travel to Cannes to meet some people or whatever. That <laughs> I am telling you, we ha- that is how we have lived our life for the last 20 years. And honestly, now that we don't really have to as much, it's really hard to get out of the habit. Like, let's talk about finally getting representation and like how that came about specifically. And then what, what has that changed in your process since that's happened? That's interesting. Okay, so again, tracing things back to the momentum that started years ago. Um, One of the women who was on the jury for the Game Changer Award, I kept in touch with. Um, She actually, we tried to get a project made together that she was producing. Didn't happen, fine. I saw in the trades that she got hired at uh, a management company that was great. And I wrote her an email, I congratulated her. I said, this is awesome, by the way, if anybody there or you are looking for talent, I'm unwrapped. And they called me in and it was a great meeting and they love my work. Um, so I signed with Echo Lake um, and I, I love the people there. Um, and then after that, um, Adam Perry at APA um, kind of hunted me down. He had seen Russ Creek and he was amazing. He was so persistent. Um, and, you know, from like never having any response before to someone like banging on your door is an amazing feeling. And what happens is this is the best way I can describe it. There is a there is a physical shift in the wind at your chest turning into the wind at your back. And it's amazing. Um, now, it's not. It's not, um, it's not a free ticket once you get representation. I think people really misunderstand that. First of all, they don't know who the fuck you are. You have to work your ass off and prove that you're not a crazy person that they can send to meetings and, and you know, spend <laughs> their relationships on. Seriously. You know, so in the beginning, you're going on generals. They're getting feedback from every single one. And what they're learning is, can I put her in a room with more important people. That's one of the things they're learning. That's, that's not the only just, thing. I just want to say that sounds really scary. Just I want to put it out there. You don't seem scared. Really? That sounds very, just the idea of judgment, the constant judgment sounds very scary. Oh, no. No? I mean, no, I have a really good time. <laughs> I go in, I just like have a laugh and, you know, I, it seems to work. 
So, you know, look, all you, all you need to do is just connect with people and have a conversation so that they want to know, first of all, by the time you get to that point, they have seen your work. They like your work, right? They don't call you in if they don't like your work. So you're going in on friendly footing. Um, all they want to know then is, do I like this person? Can I spend time with them? And secondly, what do they want to do? And do I have any projects that align with that? Like they're, people really are looking for you. So your job is to find those matches. So it's very important that you do your prep before a meeting and learn what is the network doing? What are they trying to do? What are they wanting to do? Um, you know, find out as much as you can about the person that you're meeting with. So they, oh, oh, we went to school with so-and-so together, you know, whatever, so that you can connect with people. It's really good advice. Is that where the TV directing gigs came from or did those come yes. from? Okay. Yeah. And I have to say this kind of pisses me off because it took me so long to get into television because television is so closed and it's real. It's really done. The, the hiring is really done through the agencies exclusively. I found it much easier, far easier to direct movies than television. Fortunately, I got to kind of jump in at a, a really high level. You know, my first episode was The Purge. My second episode was Twilight Zone. So, and, and thank God I got both of those before COVID because I really think I would have had to start over if I didn't. And, you know, now I'm doing something else that I can't tell you about, but it's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> got so many questions. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you said uh, earlier about the the wind shifting from being at your chest, like pushing you back to being at your back, pushing you forward. Can yeah. you describe like, like some examples of, of that, like, like a practical example? Like, does this mean like people setting meetings up for you, like to, in, the, in the project that you're trying to, you know, get together? Or is it just you know, these generals, like, talk here's what happens, that. you know, once you're in somebody's room, they assume you belong there. So you're coming from a place of, I don't know, equal, you know, your, your colleagues, you're not asking for anything. Um, you're looking to find a way to match um, because they value you and you value them. Uh, so the, the, the question of, now, you always have to prove yourself over and over and over again. So I'm not saying it's like, you know, you're in. But the question of is this, who is this person? Is this person legitimate? All of that stuff is, is removed. Um, if, if you're doing even better, you have people who are seeking you out. You know, um, th those are like the, 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 the you know, the... Alma Harrell's and Mariel Heller's like, the, you know, so that's like a whole other kind of situation. And, and those women are getting called and they're saying, what do you want to make? What do you want to make? <laughs> like a lovely question. I just want to hear that in my future. Uh, okay. Let's, yeah, I agree. Alric, we have like 30,000 questions and every answer is like amazing. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is, don't apologize for being interesting. Fantastic. Um, Let's go back to what you said about how this is your whole life. We yeah. talk to a lot of filmmakers about leading sustainable careers, which is obviously insanely difficult. And it sounds like your partner is also in the industry. Is yeah. are you so you're making your living on storytelling? Only when I started doing television. And I think, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that uh, burns women out in this industry is a lack of awareness of what the life is. Um, and that really bums me out. So it, it, 
if you are coming from if a place where you don't have connections, like you're not an industry family or, or something like that, and you don't, don't have money to the point where like, you know, you, can t- you, you don't have to have a day job. Those situations are different. If you're in a situation where you don't have those two things, um, I, I don't know how else to do it, but making it your obsession. I don't. Um, and, uh, you know, you miss weddings, you miss funerals, you miss a whole bunch of, bunch of stuff because that's your priority. I don't regret that either, by the way. No. I yes, I wish I went to those things, but I don't regret my choices at all. I I have had an incredible journey and I'm having an incredible life. And I, you know, I'm lucky as shit. And prior to the TV gigs, were you building up? Did you have a side hustle or were you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Until after Rusk Creek, actually. And I'll tell you, um, and I, I talk about this stuff very honestly, because I just think it's important for people to understand. So I worked as a production supervisor, which is the equivalent of a line producer in features um, in commercials, very big budget commercials for years. Um, I did that before I went to USC. I did that after I went to USC. I did that before both of my features and after both of my features. And I've never been more poor than when I did a feature. Um, so, I mean, we, my husband and I would joke that these like accolades would come at the same time as low balance alerts would come. We're like, you know, it's okay. Um, and then, uh, when I started making television, you make really fucking good money. And I'm convinced that that is why they don't want to let us in. They're good jobs. People are going to hold on to these with their brittle, cold, dead fingernails. Okay, so on that note, let's talk a little bit about the TV directing world because we've heard it from a few different people and I've heard it on other podcasts too, but it sounds like it's very structured and that um, it's like a very specific thing. It's not like directing a feature. It's not like directing anything else. It's like very, very honed in. Um, So now that you're in that world, like. Like, what, what does it mean? Are you like constantly pitching to get on other shows? Like, are you just getting offered okay. things? Like, how Here's does this work? Here's one of the other awesome things about television. It goes fast. It goes really fast. You can make a lot of stuff, but also there's no pitching. You interview. That's it. You don't have to spend a month doing a pitch deck and like a, a sizzle. You go in, you have a nice chat. You're hired. It's amazing. <laughs> 60 grand in your bank. Oh, oh. my God, stop it. You're killing me Sorry. Right now. just saying wonderful things out loud. Uh, and then the experience on set, are you, do you feel like you're just, you know, uh, pushing buttons and saying things that are expected? Are you, no, you, or are you look, actually here's helping? the thing, like, uh, and this goes back to what we were talking about when I was saying about what indie film sets up, especially women directors to expect. Um, because I don't write... I, I, I get so much joy out of directing a script. I don't need to pee on a script. Like it's done. If it's working, I don't care if it's not my script, you know, like, so, so television directing in a way just gives me that over and over and over again. And to me, what's really cool is the puzzle of, okay, how do I make it good within this language? That's exciting and fun. It's not feature directing. But it is really fun and cool. I so think. do you 
So do you think like this is something that you want to, you're going to be focusing on kind of going forward is just jumping from show to show to show, or do you feel like indie okay, features so are. When I first started going out on pitches for not pitches, but meetings for television, right. A, a lot of the executives would say, you know, cause all of a sudden, once somebody thinks you're cool, then somebody else thinks you're cool. So, so all of a sudden people thought I was cool and they were like, are you, I'm surprised you want to do episodic. And I was like, I didn't actually know what they meant. And I asked my reps and they're like, yeah, they're, they're saying that they see you as like a filmmaker and filmmakers don't usually want to do episodic. I'm like, what? I still didn't get it. What they meant was not pilots or not miniseries. What they mean is, you know, the episodes that somebody else has already made all the creative decisions on, the big creative decisions on. And I was like, oh, so I've lucked out though, because all of the work that I have done in television so far has been, um, it's, oh shit, what is the word? It's not um, continuous, you know? Right, so, yeah. yeah. So I get to have a lot of more influence and uh, input than I would on a, a purely episodic show, like something that's been running for years and years. Um, that said, I, I, that makes me a little spoiled too. So, you know, we, we're all, we've already started putting me up for, for pilots and I had my first pilot um, meeting uh, a month ago. Um, so, you know, cause there's more to do there. It's more creative. It's more fun. But just to follow up on Ulrich's question, do you think, um, where is the future for film? Is it going and doing indie features at the same time? Is it not going to back to the indie feature world and really focusing on studio content? I don't want to do any films. I mean, th- to me, I-, I never wanted to do indie films, but that's what was available to me. That, that was the route that I could figure out. Um, you know, I want to do big movies. I like big toys. I like blowing shit up. You don't get to do that in indie films. Um, so now not to say I don't want to also do independent film, like, but to me, I want a budget. I want, I don't want to have to struggle just to get the beats of the script on the, on into film. Like that's not fun. Um, I don't want to have to worry about is the film going to have distribution or not? That sucks. You know, so, um, you know, so we said like, okay, you know, lowest budget, $5 million, preferably with a a known producer, preferably with distribution already um, established. And that's what we're finding. I I have more questions. Ulrich looks like he's stunned. Uh, Please, (laughs) Ulrich, do you want to jump in or should I? I I'm ready. I mean, it is amazing and I love it, but please keep in mind, I made no money for 20 years. So, you know. That's why I always think like, okay, well, we're making a shit ton of money now, but if you average it out, I might not have made minimum wage in 20 years. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit about your advocacy work for women in, in storytelling with Glass Elevator slash Film Powered, you know, the evolution of Film yeah, Powered and, yeah. and uh, you know, how much of your day is devoted to it and, uh, and why do you keep doing it and, and anything you want to speak to in terms of those platforms? Yeah, I mean, uh, so <laughs> there's a lot of questions in there. So first I'll tell people what it is. Um, Glass Elevator, it's a community of professional vetted women in the industry for all across the, the jobs. So there's PAs, there's executives, lawyers, uh, distribution people. Um, it's international and what it is, is uh, it's a skill sharing site, basically. It's peer-to-peer classes, social events, and job postings. Um, 
<clears throat> for women. And the reason I started it was because, um, you know, I realized that when I was a UPM or a, a production supervisor, I forget, we call it that in commercials for the union, this is silly. Um, I had only ever worked, I had never worked with a female first AD, sound recordist, DP, um, grip or electric in 15 years. I'd only ever worked with three female directors and two of them were like one-offs. And one of them was Peggy Serrata, who is amazing. You know, she's like the cream of the crop. So, you you know, and that, that's what it's always like, okay, well, it's great when the best woman gets in, but can we have some average women get in, please? <laughs> you know, um, so, and, and the other thing I noticed was like, you need to know people in person. You have to. Every single thing that I have achieved, I can trace back to somebody that I knew in person. And the reason is when you meet someone in person, you get a feel for them. When you interact with people in real life, you learn. Do they show up on time? Do I like their sense of humor? You know, do they smell? I don't know. But like, these are things that you learn about people. And that's how you build your network and your community. And I, I, I believe very much in networking and building community sideways. And if something happens from the top down, that's luck, but it's not likely. So why spend your energy there? And for me, it's very important that women are telling stories. I don't even have to like the stories. I don't care. I need them telling stories for two reasons. Well, three reasons, really. One is our world is shit. And it is shit because we look at everything from a white, hetero, cis, male perspective. And that has broken everything. Number two, I want to not look like an alien every time I go into a pitch. I want people to get comfortable with women being different. Not, you know, you know, we don't, we don't have a Woody Allen and a, and a Michael Bay. You know, we don't have that variety. And we should, because they exist. Wait, that's only that's two. That's my soapbox. That's, I thought there was a third. <laughs> oh, I, forgot. I, for, I forgot. I got distracted. I got distracted. You the called cat. me out. I forgot. I forget what the, the third reason is. Yeah. But oh, okay, you know what it is? Honestly, I, I, need, I need women to last. I need women to last. And I feel that there are so many programs for new filmmakers. I don't understand why we funnel all these filmmakers into an industry that doesn't want them. I need them to last. That means I need you to be able to pay your bills. I need you to have friends in the industry so you're not fucking lonely. I need these things to happen. So, so here's a question, Jen. Um, it sounds like from what, what we're hearing, it's like indie film is like the, the stepping stone to get to the paid work that you actually for can for you. But, but I mean, is there a world where like indie film can be sustainable and you can like make a living doing that? Or do you feel like that that's just like a pipe dream and that, you know, something needs to change in order for us to actually continue to make these. Films. I can only tell you what I have experienced. I do not know a single filmmaker that makes their living solely off of independent film producers, directors, or writers. And if they tell you that they're probably lying. 
It's because no one's making money from their films. I mean, it's like you look at that uh, producer sustainability survey that Rebecca Green did. Producers are suffering and they're the people who are usually the rights holders for the films. I mean, it it varies, Um, but that's supposed to be a reflection of how how broken our system is. Yeah. When you see a big uh, story in Deadline or Hollywood Reporter, so-and-so's film got picked up. Doesn't mean any money was exchanged. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to, to, I want to end the conversation with, if there's like some sort of bright, cheery sort of thing where it's like, well, you know, for- I don't find any of these things to be negative, by the way. Well, (laughs) it's just like for indie filmmaker, like, okay, so for hearing from my perspective, it's like, okay, so, you know, like I I made my my first feature, I'm probably gonna have to make a second one, but like, what, what am I looking for in the future? It's like, okay, to break into television. And then once I'm in television to maybe break into something else, but it's like, you know, it feels like what I really would want to hear is like, is there a way to just continue this, sustain this life of like making feature to feature to feature or, or pro- whatever it is, project, project to project. Of course. But it, it doesn't, from what we've- <laughs> you have to be very specific about what you want. Right. If you are happy where you live, who you're with, your current life, your current job, and you love making a movie with your buddies once every five years, why would you waste your time trying to get into television? Right. It makes no sense. If you hate traveling and you need to be near your family, why would you try to get into independent feature filmmaking? Or, or feature filmmaking for that matter. I will be away from my husband for six months this year. You need to be very specific. You know, maybe that means, okay, I'm happy making a film with my buddies in the backyard. You're still a filmmaker. You're still a filmmaker. <laughs> well, there seems- But, 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 the, like- but here's the problem. People say, I want to be a director, and that's not what they want. They want to be a famous director. They want to be a rich director. They want to be a fancy director. They're lying when they say they just want to be a director. Right. You can be more specific. You can have the thing you want. Interesting. I mean, <laughs> I feel like the specificity in what I'm looking for, or I think a lot of filmmakers and a lot of the filmmakers that we have on the show are looking for is just the being able to make film after film after film, you know, just like, so like you make one film, you, you, you get that done, it gets released, and then you, you are able to raise the money or have the budget to make the next These film. are all very different fi- things than just making film after film. Liz, you make film after film. You do that excellently. Thank you. But I also, right, like I have some support. And I mean, yeah. I think what we all, and to re, I don't know, to att- attempt to interpret what Ulrich is saying, which is very clear, mm-hmm. I'm just not good at interpreting people. Um, is there a world where in any way um, you could make money from independent features? And I don't, I, I agree. I think it's impossible. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. I, I, I'm not, maybe I'm not the person to ask. It doesn't mean that I'm right. In my experience, I have no idea how you do that. I feel like it's uh, it's something that like Liz's whole program that she's doing, it's like, this is what she's trying to figure out with um, Naomi McDougal-Jones is trying to figure out how uh, this could change, you know, and like how things could be different for indie filmmakers, you know? I think it starts with being honest. I think it does not help people to say that once you get your short film in Sundance, you're going to be a big famous director. I think it does not help people to not be honest about what the lifestyle looks like. It's not fair. Right. And it's really lonely for people. They feel like they're the only ones failing. No, everybody's failing. That was the other thing, the other takeaway from the show that I've had is that we've asked every single person who's been on the show, like, or majority of people, do you feel like a success? 
No one feels like a success. No one feels like they've broken through. Everyone feels like they have something to prove. And so I think it's a head game too. I kind of do actually. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I kind of do. It just blew you know up speakers. Sorry. You know why? Because I'm finally making a living off of the thing that I wanted to make a living off of. That was my goal. That was my very specific goal. And I'm, I, and I'm luckily getting to do it off of projects that I get excited about. Now, the reason is, is because they say no to other things. We're going to call the show Living the Dream with Jen McGowan. <laughs> I think this conversation could go on forever. But Liz, do you have any final question before we get into our last five? Oh, I'll, I'll save it for the final five. Okay. All right. I'll go first. So, Jen, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Oh, God. I don't even want to mention this. <laughs> I don't even want, <sighs> all right, so it was a short film. I'm not even gonna tell you the title. It was a short film that I made when I was a receptionist in New York City for a commercial production company. I made it in, I wanna say 1998, shot over two days, shot on 16 millimeter. I don't even remember how I cut it, but I did. And uh, by the way, shot, created and produced on a receptionist salary. So I don't wanna hear anybody say they can't get a movie made. And it's horrible. But actually, I'll tell you, I was really scarred because I showed it to my boss and she said it was sophomoric and I had to look up what that word was. (laughs) (laughs) Your your first film is sophomoric. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it helped me figure out what I wanted to do. So it was very important. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Ever received? Mm, What was the exact way they put it? No is neutral. If someone tells you no, they didn't change your life in any fashion. You're in the exact same position you were in before you spoke to them. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just going to like, if I ever make it big, I'm going to pay you and ask you to be my <laughs> life coach and just like get like, can I just like have a transactional relationship where I give you money and you just like share pearls of Say wisdom. That's <laughs> a Twitter score. You can have it for free. <laughs> I, I want to frame that. That's, that's pretty amazing. Love that. It's a, it's a very big mindset change. It's powerful. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah. I want to have a long career um, being able to pay my bills off of this and making stuff that I'm proud to put my name on. If you could go back in time, uh, what would be the piece of advice you would give yourself? That's hard. That's hard because the problem is my journey has determined what I'm doing right now. So even everything that was horrible and miserable and I cried over is why we're having this conversation now. I'm not big on looking back either. I just, I don't, it seems so pointless. Right. Cause all the things that happened bad or good led you to where you are right now. Basically. They don't matter. I can't do anything about them anymore. I like to focus but on you what could I could. If you went back in time, Jen, you're missing. All right, the I know. You're right. I undermined your question. I'm so sorry. I'm not behaving. Okay. I don't know. That's okay. Your answer. Was you know great. what I would say, actually? No. Actually, you know what I would say? I think I would have gotten to where I wanted to go sooner if I had trusted that I have something unique to say that people want to hear. You, when, you're, when you're building your voice, which is, I don't know what the hell that is, but you have to run and believe that the ground is going to meet you, right? And the best way to do that is to be as much the best version of yourself that you can be. It's the only way to guarantee that you're not copying something. Wow. Love it. Last question. Is making movies hard? Sure. <laughs> but it's fun. <laughs> 
<laughs> awesome. Um, thank you Be- for coming Best today. answer ever. <laughs> Do you want to um, plug anything, um, instruct people how to follow you who aren't already following you, anything? Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I'm uh, at I am Jen McGee. And I would love it if people would watch my movies, Kelly and Cal and Rust Creek. I think they're both on Netflix and, you know, Amazon and all the digital places. So please check it out and, you know, go make good shit, everybody. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Okay, so Liz isn't here, but if there was one question I would ask Jim McGowan, I would have to ask her about directing Star Trek Discovery because... You know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and I would love to hear about how she handled working in that universe and what that whole experience was like. So I would love to hear all the stories that she had about working on that show and also just to hear about what she's doing next. Like, is she sticking with TV? Is she got another feature? What does the future look like for Jen? That's what I would want to know about. So it's time to play You're the Expert. For all you who don't know, You're the Expert is a new game that was devised by our producer, Eric Toms. And basically, it's where Eric comes up with a question that he knows we would have the definitive answer to, that Liz and I are the experts in. Sadly, Liz isn't here, so she can't answer, but I will do my best to answer this question. Here we go. What advice do you have for someone who wants to get involved with the entertainment industry who is young, but over the age of 18, a little shy, and lives in a small town? Well, (laughs) good question. There's a lot of different ways that you could handle this. I feel like every town has a news station, and most news stations will have some sort of, you know, entertainment show or some kind of entertainment something. So that's one way to get started is to try to like get involved with that show, you know, be an intern at the, at the, at the station, get your chops that way. I was an intern at a TV station in San Francisco, which was really helpful when I first started. And, you know, that's a whole way into the industry if you want to go that route and especially into broadcasting. But yeah, I mean, you know, some of the things I wished I had done when I was 18, I wish I had applied to more internships and programs not in the town that I was in because you know you can go online and find job opportunities needing interns and PAs and and whatnot um, on shows in New York and Los Angeles so I did that a little bit I applied for the Conan show once didn't get it didn't even get an interview (laughs) but I think I would have probably focused on that if I was you know young and wanted to get started I would have tried to get like some kind of job you know in the industry on a big show and I think that could be really helpful when you're first starting out because, you know, you can make lots of connections, make lots of friends. You know, you're in the small town, but doesn't mean you can't move. So if you are able to get a job, like you can you can find ways to support yourself and move and, and be in a new area. I know that's a very hard thing to do, but it's definitely an option. You know, another thing that you can do is just make make art, make movies. I think that's always really important. I'm a big believer in that. So I think that's another thing that we can all be thinking about, you know, when we're just starting out is just to make things. But yeah, I do think getting internships is really important. So like, even if you can't move anywhere, there's got to be TV stations, there's got to be video production happening in your town. So I would find 
those companies, those opportunities and get internships with those places because that's where you're going to like meet the people who are going to help you later and also get the skills that you need to get started. So yeah, I would I would find whatever job you can that's in, within the industry in your town and get an internship and meet those people who are working in, in the field that you want to be in in your area. So yeah, hope that's helpful. You know, if you have a different idea, let us know. You can always send us a question, comment, suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We love those. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for doing our social media. Robert, you are a godsend. Thanks to our producer, Eric Thomas, for being awesome. Thanks to you all for listening and we'll talk to you on Monday. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.